you would to Proverbs chapter 3. <clears throat> Proverbs chapter 3. Every, every year about this time, I make a statement similar to this. I don't, probably don't say it the same way every year, but, um, but it's similar, I'm sure. And that is, I don't like New Year's resolutions. I, I never have. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever actually made one. I probably have, but uh, I don't remember ever making one. But I've always been very curious about why people do. So <clears throat> this year, I did some research to try and figure it out. And I still don't have all the answers, but at least I got a little bit better idea of why. Why, why do people make res- New Year's resolutions? So I, I've got some, some uh, information for you I thought I'd share. Uh, uh, according to Forbes uh, survey um, recently, 62% of people say they feel pressured to set New Year's resolutions. I found that to be interesting. 62% feel pressured to make... Who, who would pressure someone to do that? I, I was just, it was just an odd thought. But 62% of people feel pressured to do it. In a different survey, uh, the survey uh, recognized that 52% of people in the United States make New Year's resolutions are determined to stick it out. So 52% that make New Year's resolutions are determined to do it. That means that there's 48% that do it have for no reason. Anyway, whatever. The reality is this. Only 12% actually stick to it. 12%. As I was reading this Forbes article, I found something interesting I thought I'd share with you. It, it, it says this, this is a quote from the article. If you find yourself in, in the camp of setting lofty goals for the new year, <clears throat> to, to find yourself falling off the wagon in just a few weeks, uh, uh, excuse me, in, uh, off the wagon uh, just months or weeks after, rest assured you are not alone. In fact, I didn't know this, in fact, failing at New Year's resolutions is so common that there are even a slew of unofficial dates commemorating such failures. This is for the skeptics, I guess. I don't know. But <clears throat> some sources cite ditch the New Year resolution day as January 17th. While others denote the second Friday of January as Quitter's Day. <clears throat> the strange thing about it is, you know, people make them all the time. And through my research, I found that there are basically three reasons why people make New Year's resolutions. And I, I personally, I, I can see all, of, all three of these. They all make sense. The first one is, it's their way to quantify what we wish for ourselves. 
It is a chance for us to quantify the things in our lives that we wish we would be better about, right? Makes sense to me. The second one is, they are a means of uh, uh, cataloging our personal dissatisfaction with ourselves. Okay, I, I get that. How many of you are... 100% happy with who you are. Hopefully none of us. (laughs) You know, I mean, yeah, Marley is. Yeah, she's perfect, right, Bob? She's like Mary Poppins. Just, you know, just practically perfect in every way. And then the third, the third reason or, uh, for New Year's resolutions is perhaps most importantly, they are a method of easing error of the past year. So it's a, it, basically what it boils down to, the, at least from my research, is New Year's resolutions are about being hopeful for the next year. It is, it is our opportunity to evaluate ourselves, to quantify or to categorize our failures in the past year and put them away and move forward in the new year. So, so New Year's resolutions, for the most part, are hopeful. They're new beginnings. The mistakes of 2023 are about to come to an end in just a few hours. And uh, 2024 is a new year. We haven't messed it up yet. Yes. Until we get to January 17th, and then it's all over. It's, you know. But seriously, it's, a, it's an opportunity for us to evaluate our lives and to look forward and kind of put away some of the old bad decisions we made 2023 and looking forward to 2024. New Year's resolutions are so ingrained in in the in the American culture that the the federal government probably cost us a few billion dollars, but they did a study. The federal government came up with a baker's dozen list of things that the most things that people do resolutions about new year's resolutions you ready you're going to write these down real quick i'm going to give them to you real quick see how many of these you've done number one what is it lose weight number two i I, I was actually pretty pretty excited about number two volunteer to help others number two yeah, that is good. Number three, quit smoking. Number four, get a better education. Number five, get a better job. Number six, save money. Number seven, I would have thought number seven would have been higher, but anyway, uh, get fit. That kind of goes with losing weight, I think, you, you know, but anyway. Um, and then number eight, eat healthier. We can all do that. <laughs> Number nine, manage stress. Well, that'd be a nice one. 
Number 10, and this, again, this is one I would have thought would have been higher, but uh, manage debt. That's a big one. Number 11, take a trip. Number 12, reduce or reuse or recycle. You know, we live in a, we live in a world today of minimalists. Uh, us, us older people tend to have a lot of stuff, and it's good to get rid of stuff. And then number 13, drink less alcohol. So you have a list here, a baker's dozen, put out by the federal government, um, of what the average person either wants to stop doing or start doing. This morning, I want to challenge our thinking. I'm not asking you to make a resolution, a New Year's resolution, but I do want to challenge your thinking in the sense that, you know what? There are some things in my life that can change. And really, if in, in, in a very practical sense, that should be our attitude all the time. We should always be willing to allow God to do a work in our hearts and lives. I'm going to challenge you with a couple resolutions or thoughts or changes that I want to challenge you with from a pretty wise guy. Arguably, he's, the, apart from Jesus Christ, he's probably the, the wisest person that's ever lived. Who, who would that be? Solomon. Solomon was the son of King David. After David died, Solomon was made king over Israel. And shortly after that, he, he had a dream. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, in verse 7 uh, through 12, this is the dream that he had. And it says, in, in that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father and hath made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established. For thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I might go out and come in before this people. For thou canst judge, excuse me, for who can judge this thy people? That is so great. And God said to Solomon, because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked for riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet hast thou Ask long life, but has asked for wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people, over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings had that have been before thee, neither shall there any after thee have the like. So here we have a, a situation where Solomon is made king of Israel because of the death of his father David. And, and God comes to Solomon and says, hey, what can I do for you? 
And Solomon does something very wise in the fact that he asks for wisdom and knowledge. And God says, well, because you did not ask for riches and so on and so forth, like many of us would have done, God gave him all of that. The title of my message this morning is A Wise New Year's Resolution. A Wise New Year's Resolution. Solomon, in his wisdom, I believe, and the leading of God, wrote a book. Actually, he wrote, he wrote a few books, but he wrote a book called Proverbs. Proverbs <clears throat> was Solomon's attempt to try and help his son to learn wisdom and the fear of God. He wanted his son Rehoboam, who would be the next king, to walk in wisdom and fear of God. In Proverbs chapter 1, in verses 7 and 9, uh, Solomon gives us the purpose of the book. Let me read it for you. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, who's, so who's he, who's he writing to? Uh, Jeroboam, his son. Or Rehoboam, excuse me. Rehoboam, his son. My son, hear the instructions of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head and chains about thy neck. So the book of Proverbs was written by the, the well, it was written by God, but the author, the author was God, but the penman was Solomon. And I believe that with all my heart that God led Solomon to write this book primarily to his son, but for us today as well. A book of wisdom that we can learn from and that we can grow from and that, you, you know, the, 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 there, there is a saying that the, the best teacher is making your own mistakes. I, I don't agree with that. That's, that may be a good teacher, but the, it's not the best teacher. The best teacher is learning from somebody who is wise and trying to pass along information to save you the hurt of making those mistakes. Now, I don't know about you, but I've made a lot of mistakes in my, my day. A lot. And none of them felt good. But when I have listened to the Word of God and changed my life according to this book, it has saved me a lot of heartache. That is the best way to learn. So this morning I want to communicate to you a wise New Year's resolution. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 3. Let's start reading in verse 1. It says, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. For length of day and long life and peace shall they add to thee. Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck and write them upon the table of thine heart. 
so shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and man. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this time together. Thank you for your love and for the word of God. And we ask, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, that you would challenge us, that you would help us to to see the, the truths of this book and uh, adapt these truths into our lives. Not so that we can make a New Year's resolution, but that we can make a change. That we can walk out of here this morning a different person. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience with us. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Point number one this morning is let mercy and truth define you. Let mercy and truth define you. Look at verse 3. Solomon tells his son, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. Bind them about thy neck and write them upon the tables in thine heart. In other words, let mercy and truth define who you are. These are two words that <clears throat> I want to talk about for a minute because mercy is, it means to be kind and faithful or, or just in, in, our, in our 21st century vernacular, we would probably want to throw the word good in. Somebody who's just good and faithful and, 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 and kind. That's what Solomon is saying here. Let that be the thing that defines who you are. But the second thing he says is truth. Mercy and truth. Now, truth is one of those things that is absolute. Mer mer uh, truth is something that is truth. I don't know how else to put it. And we, we live in a world today that we live in a world of extremes, do we not? We, we, we live in a world of, of extremes and one of the extremes is truth and over here is truth. And, and there are people in our world today that stand on truth and say, you know what, bless God, I'm going to stand for truth. And, they're, and, and they're, they're not very kind and loving about it, are they? And then you have the, 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 the other extreme over here that just accepts everything and, and, and there is no truth and there is no absolutes and everything is, is obscure. This is the world we live in. And the people in this extreme are just as mean as that extreme. Right? Is that not the world we live in? But what does Solomon tell us here? Solomon very clearly here says, Let not mercy and truth forsake thee. And the reality is this. Truth can be truth in a loving way. It doesn't have to be hateful. It doesn't have to be mean. But it's still truth. And we need to live in truth 
in a loving, kind, generous way. That should be the thing to define us. We should not be defined by our extremes. Now, let let me ask you a question. Did Jesus stand for truth? Hello? Of course he did. Was he ever ever ugly about it? No. He always stood for truth, but he always loved. So what is the thing that defines you? Are you defined by one of the extremes? I hope not. Verse 4. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and who? And men. You know, the interesting thing about people is that people always respect those who stand for truth as long as they do it in a loving, caring way. Let mercy and truth define you. The second point this morning, let knowing Him drive you. Let knowing Him be the thing that drives you. Look at verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. What drives you? You know, we talked about New Year's resolutions earlier and, and, and every New Year's of the 13 uh, the baker's dozen that the federal government puts out as the most popular New Year's resolutions, every single one of those has to do with self-improvement. I want to be a better, healthier person. I want, to, I want to smoke less. I want to drink less. I want to do this less. I want to do that. I want to do this more. Why? Because we want to improve ourselves, right? I, I, out of curiosity, I was, I was curious, so I typed into Google this question. What is the one thing that makes you do what you do? I just typed that in, hit enter, and I was amazed what I found. I'm going to read a couple of examples for you. I find that trying to become a better person is what motivates and inspires me. Is there anything wrong with that statement? Do you believe... Uh, 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 do you believe in something passionately? Then prioritize that thing in your life. Turning dreams into reality. A love for people and their potential. What motivates us? Again, every single one of these things that I read on on Google after typing that question and had to do with self-improvement. What, what is going to make me happy? But what does Solomon tell us? 
the thing that is going to make me happy is not trying to improve myself. The thing that is truly going to make me happy is seeking God. That is the one thing that is always going to make me truly happy. Let's read the verses again, verses 4 and 5, or or, excuse me, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not into thy own understanding. Wow, that's a statement and a half from the wisest guy that's ever lived. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in God. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct our paths. It is a matter of us putting ourselves aside and saying, God, I need to know you more. What is is the thing that drives you to knowing God more or knowing yourself better? Philippians chapter 3, verses uh, 8 to 10. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul here makes it very clean. He's clear. He says, all these things are lost except for the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I might win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which, <clears throat> uh, which is of God by faith, that I might know Him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable unto his death. What was the thing that drove Paul? Getting to know God better. That was the one thing that Paul said, you know what, I count all the rest as dung. It it is worthless. The wealth of this world, all of the things... In fact, I I just went through here. Solomon, in in another book that Solomon wrote, what did Solomon say? After, After spending his life accumulating all the wealth that God gave him, God said there would be no king to ever live in Israel that is as powerful and, and, and rich as you are. The, most, the, the richest man that Israel has ever seen. He said, anything I wanted, I got. Anything that my eye saw that, that, that created a desire, I, I went and got it. Why? He could afford anything. But what did he say at the end of his life? It was all worthless. Vanity of vanities. It was was all worthless. Paul here is telling us 
our priority needs to be getting to know Jesus better. And as I thought about this, I I thought about and, and I, I'm talking to myself. I'm 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 communicating to you what I was what I was challenging myself with. How much time have I spent in the Word of God this year, getting to know my Savior? Was it enough? You say, but you're a pastor. You you get paid to read the Bible. <clears throat> That's not why I read it, by the way. Just saying. <laughs> But the reality is this, to my shame, I could have spent more time. Because I'll, I'll be honest with you, please, please get this. There's a big difference between spending time in the Word of God to know Him, and there's a big difference between that and spending time in the Word of God to prepare a sermon. Sometimes they go hand in hand, but they don't always. And the key is spending time in this book to know him. That's the key. How much time have I did, did I spend in, in prayer this year, fellowshipping with my father? Could I have spent more time getting to know him better? And obviously the truth is, the, the truth is yes. We are all guilty of not spending enough time. But it boils down to what is the one thing that drives you? What is the one thing that makes you do what you do? Solomon here, very clearly, is trying to communicate to his son, Son, get to know God. Get to know Him. Trust Him. That's the key. Verse 5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy paths. Now those of you that know the end of the story, so to speak. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, ultimately did not listen to his dad. He did not lean unto the knowledge of God, but he leaned to his own knowledge. And disaster struck. And the kingdom was divided under Rehoboam because he wouldn't listen to his dad. My challenge to you this morning is listen to listen to his dad. As I was re redoing my thoughts as I sometimes I go through sermons multiple times and change things and anyway as I was going through I think for the third or fourth time a thought came to my to me. A question that I asked myself. 
Is knowing Him what drives me? Or is self-improvement what drives me? Now, do I want to be healthier next year? Do I want to lose weight next year? Absolutely. Do, do I want to save money? And I, I mean, I could go back to the list and, and you know, do, you know, read the list again. You know, many of those things, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. But is that what drives me? Is that the one thing that is the most important in my life? And I have to tell you, as of right here, right now, today, the most important thing in my life right now is getting to know Him more. Number three. Let mercy and truth define you. Let knowing Him drive you. Number three, let humility direct you. Let humility direct you. Look at verse seven. Be not wise and I know nigh. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It shall be health to thy navel and marrow to thy bones. There are two primary ways that humility plays a huge part in our lives. Humility is something that I think is missing in our society as a whole. True humility. But the first way that humility plays an an incredible part in our lives is, is in our salvation. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom? And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as a little child, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Humility. My dad got saved when he was 90 or uh, 84, 83, 84, something like that. A couple years before he died. And I believe the thing that held my dad back for many, many years of getting saved was pride. He just could not humble himself enough to say, I need a Savior. And Jesus here very clearly gives us a word picture here of a, of a small child. And he says, except ye be converted and become as a little child, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Humility. It takes humility to acknowledge that God loves you. We read the verse earlier in John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I've shared this before. I'll share it a million more times, hopefully, before I die. 
the one obstacle that I had to get over before I could get saved was the simple fact that God could love someone like me. I knew me. I knew the horrible person that I was. But it was that obstacle of love. I had to, God had to humble me to help me understand how much God could love someone like me. It takes humility to acknowledge the love of God in your life. It takes humility to acknowledge the fact that you have a need in your life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. You have nothing to do with it. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We must humble ourselves to understand that we need a Savior, that we cannot do it on our own. That was a huge, that was a huge burden or hurdle for me to get over. And I know it was for my dad. But he got over it. The second primary way that humility can direct us is in our walk. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is it talks, it, 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 it helps us understand that these people in the Bible were, were, were real people, okay? Uh, Jesus' disciples, for, for example, uh, they used to fight all the time. You know, we, we kind of have this image oftentimes of our, in our mind of, of Jesus' disciples and, and, and all of the things that, you know, and these, you know, people walking around with little wings and halos and, you know, and they're, oh, 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 you know. Yeah. No, they were, they were jerks. They fought all the time. They didn't get along. And, and they were fighting one time and, and they, they, <clears throat> They wanted to know who was the greatest. We just, we just read it in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read it here again. But they were, they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus' answer in Matthew that we read a minute ago, we're going to read again. Uh, Jesus addresses first the question of salvation. And then he talks about our walk with him. So let's read, and we're going to add, add a verse to the end of it. Um, so in, uh, we read a minute ago, Matthew 18, 1 through 3. Now we're going to read Matthew 18, 1 through 4. It says, At the same time came the disciples unto him, saying, in other words, they were arguing, Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Now, now let, let's stop here. What were they wanting to hear? That they were. You twelve, or or you you six, are better than this six, or you two. I, that's what they were wanting, is it not? Is that not what we all want? We all want recognition. 
And Jesus does something that absolutely blows their minds. Verse 2, and he says, and, and Jesus called a little child into him and set him in the midst of them. You know, <clears throat> let, let me stop. How many of you grew up going to Sunday school? Okay, about half of you. Okay, you, you always see the little Bible story pictures where Jesus has the, has the, the kid sitting on his knee. and all. That's not what it says. What's it say? He said he set the child in the midst of them. So here's this kid surrounded by all these disciples looking at this kid going, okay, what's this all about? And Jesus says this, and and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as a little child, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as a little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So picture this. you got the disciples standing around. Jesus brings his kids, sets them down in the middle, and he says, you need to be like that. What were they wanting to hear? I've arrived. I have achieved. I deserve to have recognition. I deserve all of this. And Jesus says, no. Humility is how you walk with me. James chapter 4 and verse 10, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, Humble yourself therefore uh, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. John Riskin said this, I believe the first test of a truly great man is his humility. I do not... <clears throat> mean by humility, doubting uh, uh, one's own power or hesitation to speak his opinion. But really great men have a feeling that greatness is not in them, but through them. That they could not do or be anything else other than what God made them. M.R. DeHaan said this, Humility is something we should constantly pray for, yet never thank God that we have. I like that. We should constantly be praying and asking God to humble us and use us. Unlike the disciples who thought that they had arrived, we should never think that. As we consider this new year, 2024, I'm not asking you to make a New Year's resolution. That's not what I'm asking you. 
but I do want you to consider. Let mercy and truth define who you are. Stand for truth, but do it in a way that is loving. And you will find respect by God and men. Let knowing God be the thing that drives you. Let that be the thing that ultimately, the thing that drives you. Self-improvement is good. We all need it. There's all, everyone in this room has areas in your life that you could do better at. But let's make it a point this year to know him more. And then let humility be the thing that directs you. Humility through salvation and humility in your walk. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and for the work you do in our lives. Lord, you are so good to us, so kind and so gracious. And Lord, as we not only wind up this service, but this year, Lord, challenge us this year with our thinking. Not that we can make New Year's resolutions to be better people, but that we can make some decisions that can change our lives. With every head bowed and every eye closed, let me ask you, 